the house. Let me hear your bark. Let me see you bite. Let me see your scar. You know what we about. Come see us in the yard. Hello and welcome to the third or fourth most mediocre Husky football podcast on the internet. I'm Andrew Berg. Coach B and Gaby are both on location getting Brittany Griner released from Russian prison today. So joining us, a special guest, we don't usually get graced with his presence, but our editor, Max Ruman, is joining us this evening. How are you doing, Max? I'm doing all right. Man, bad break. Both Gaby and Coach B there? Mm. I know. Yeah. it's It takes a lot of uh, diplomacy. Yeah. And there's already a lot of uh, hard feelings. Most of the nation's politicians are fighting over um, Ukraine-Russia policy right now, so they needed to send a special delegation. And it happened just so happened to be Coach and Gaby. Uh, we're going to do things a little differently this week uh, because there's no game to preview this weekend. We're going to start off talking about Cowboy, then we're going to talk uh, do some midseason awards in the second half. So uh, that should be a fun diversion. Let's start with the Cal game, though. Uh, ended up 28-21. First half looked like a completely different set of teams playing football. Um, you know, Cal couldn't move the ball at all, but neither could UW. So it's like our offense wasn't playing to script and, their, and our defense wasn't playing to script. Second half looked very familiar. We outscored Cal 22-21 after halftime, which is kind of the script from the previous two or three games. Is it realistic to learn anything from the first half and carry that through defensively or, you know, more frighteningly offensively? I, I would love to say on the defensive side of things that there is, oh yeah, there's an obvious thing that we did and that Cal just happened to spot it, but in the future, no one ever is going to be able to beat it. But no, I I really think that was just kind of circumstance and we happen to have, I, I think Cal's offense is such that they're only going to be able to put together so many good drives and it just happened to be that all of those were in the second half. Uh, uh, when you look at the stats from Sports Info Solutions, Plummer only had five on-target balls in the first half uh, and a lot more than that in the second half. So I, I think the amount of pressure was pretty much the same in both. Uh, he just got into a little bit more of a rhythm. And I, you know, the one thing that I could potentially say is that I noticed that before against Arizona that uh, that Jordan Perryman was kind of, as the game went on, increasingly had a limp and would come out for a play or two. And he didn't come out for any plays on this, but he really got picked on in the second half. And that was probably the biggest change. And so maybe he, you know, it, it tightened up during halftime or, or whatever the case may be. Um, and that kind of led to him being a step slower in the second half. And, and maybe that's correctable by him getting the bye week. But in terms of a scheme and everything, I don't know that there's that much that's fully translatable as far as the offense goes between the halves um it really just came down to we were making you know that one critical mistake on second or third down on all yep. of those drives in the first half that uh either put us into field goal range uh where we where we couldn't quite convert in the red zone or uh took us we you know obviously had the had the touchdown that got called back on the pick that wasn't really a pick it was more of just Cal being in the wrong position and Polk running into their defender and therefore uh, it getting called. Uh, but those were the little things that happened a lot more in the first half than they did in the second half. And uh, that's just about overall consistency, us being able to do that in the future. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously the, the pass rush 
was there the whole game from different spots, but then in the second half, they were able to get through it more often. Uh, it just kind of in the first half, it was hit arriving at just the right times in the second half, not always the case. I will give Cal credit. They have a tremendous list of uh, player names who sound like guys who are like on the crew team at Princeton or something. They have, I, I, I had to revisit this because it struck me during the game, but J. Michael Sturdivant, which is just a wonderful crew at Princeton name, uh, had eight catches, two touchdowns. They also had a punt returner named Justin Richard Baker and a defender named Raymond Woody the third. Is like a very wonderful uh, group of names offensively. Uh, but for for the dogs' credit, it seemed like the offense did adjust well in the second half. They recognized the defensive shell that Cal was playing in, and Michael Penix kind of took over that area in the 8 to 12 yards kind of in front of the safeties and let the receivers make a few more plays and just kind of didn't uh didn't get cocky just said you know if this is what you're going to give us we'll take it and take it and take it and if not for a couple of drops and phantom penalties like you mentioned it probably would have been a lot more than 28 points more than 22 in the second half it could have been 30 plus in the second half uh do you think that that is something we're going to see more teams try to do against Penix and this group of dynamic wide receivers the rest of the schedule, or is it just kind of what Cal's strength was and they were trying to make the most of a tough situation? Uh, I'm sure that someone will look at this and say, yeah, that we, we got held to 28 points and therefore it's a strategy worth trying to, to try to play entirely with that, those two deep looks and, and try to keep UW with everything in front and, and work in that intermediate range. I just don't know that that's going to work out for everyone. It really felt like, circumstances kind of worked against UW to, to hold them to 28 points. Um, and there were, I think we had a 95th percentile success rate. We had a 55% success rate for the game, uh, which is, you know, evidence of the fact that we really were moving six, seven yard chunks, eight yard chunks, nine yard chunks for most of the game. And then we'd get down to the red zone and we'd have that one bad penalty that, you know, would turn it from a third and five to a third and 10. And then we, we couldn't quite make the play. And sometimes we did make the play. We, we did have a few of those long conversions where that worked. Um, so I'm sure we'll see it. Uh, I think that maybe it's going to be a little bit easier potentially to pull off when we're on the road. If you're going to get those calls uh, like Cal was getting compared to what they might be able to get at Husky stadium. But if you're if you're not getting the benefit of a home whistle to slow down the Huskies a little bit, I I don't know that that's going to be sustainable. I I think it probably is still preferable to you know the Michigan State where it seemed like we were scoring you know minute and a half drives with a 50 yard play every time down the field, and I'm sure most defensive coordinators would much rather say, hey, uh, we're going to try to make them make them go down the field on us. Uh, I, I play ultimate Frisbee and we play a zone defense. That is, you're trying to get, make the other team, uh, have as many throws as possible, because even if they're easy throws, there's always a chance every time you would have an additional throw that somebody's going to make a dumb error. And, you know, Cal did that and made us work 10, 11 plays and every play you, you, you force the opponent to go into, that's one extra play where they could drop an easy pass or the lineman misses a block or something goes wrong and they call a penalty. Um, so you know, I, I would probably as a defensive coordinator rather put UW into situations where they have to to have longer drives and go down the field. Um, but I definitely think this is an offense that is good enough to say, okay, cool, we'll do that and we'll still score. 
Yeah. I mean, you don't have to look far to see that strategy on a football field either. I mean, that's kind of the basis of the Pete Kwiatkowski, Chris Peterson defensive uh, game plan that we saw for most of the last decade. And it's, you know, whether it's being able to consistently execute or if it's just the arrogance of the opposing offensive coordinator saying like, we can, we can get through this. We can make the big play. Uh, It was, it was kind of gratifying to see that even though we have a you know somewhat unproven offensive coordinator and Ryan Grubb calling plays, at least at this level, didn't feel the need to put his stamp on the game and just took what was there and got the win. And like you said, I mean, not only were there some questionable penalties, but it was questionable at super painful moments, like the Troy Fatanu holding call where the pass rusher just fell down and pulled Fatanu down on top of him. Uh, the the Polk pick you mentioned earlier was another one, and it's like those directly took points off the board. It wasn't like speculative tr- sidetracked to drive at our own thirty five yard line, and then Peyton Henry missed an easy field goal. What's something that he almost never misses from? I think it was thirty eight yards, uh, and and it wasn't even like a fade or anything. It looked like he just aimed yeah. it incorrectly. It was a beautiful looking kick that just didn't yeah. go between the uprights. So uh, a lot of ways that those. 28 points could have turned into 31 or 38 or 30, whatever. It would have been a very different outcome. Let's talk a little bit about the running back rotation because it was, it's been a rotation all year. Uh, it was more of a rotation this week. It was almost like Hollywood squares. There were six running backs plus Giles Jackson, all getting carries out of the backfield. Is that desirable? I mean, is this happening because we have an embarrassment of riches or is it happening because uh, nobody is seizing the position and kind of becoming the best option at that position? Or is it just, we like to get a variety of looks? Well, I think if you went to the preseason, I think the board was directly asked how many running backs do you want? And I think he said, we want two and maybe three. And that was, that was the goal going into this. And I think they gave Wayne Talapapa, you know, has gotten every chance to be the guy uh, who was the primary featured back. Uh, and I think for the most part, he's, he's done okay, but obviously in this game, it's seemed pretty clear that he got benched after halftime with those three drops in the first half, uh, didn't come back in and get another carry in the second half. So we'll see coming off the bye week, what happens in his, in his post-game press conference, or I guess in the Monday press conference, the board said that, you know, Wayne hasn't dropped any of those in practice. And that's why he's still the first guy is because he's had that consistency in practice, but now between that, between dropping the toss you know, that led to the safety against UCLA, you know, he's had some of these moments in games where it just, he, he's made a crucial mistake with his hands and he's done well in other moments, but I think that's what's led to a little bit of the confusion there. And then beyond that, I, I think they want Cam Davis to be that second guy. And I think he's been quite good for most of the season and especially around the goal line. He's the one guy who's been able to punch it in and get those looks. So I think in a perfect world, they would say, all right, we have Talapapa, and we have Davis, and beyond that, maybe, you know, you have Nixon as a change of pace, as a little bit more of a speedier ex-receiver um, who can do some of those more gadget things, and maybe that would be your three, and that's kind of how they started out the year, but I mean, when Richard Newton's been in the game, he's done good things this year. He looked really good against uh, ASU before the uh, presumed concussion that he took, although they didn't officially announce it, that kept him out for a week. And then, uh, you know, obviously he came into the game and had that great touchdown catch, which he's not really known for. He did have one, I think it was against BYU a few years ago, where he also made a, like, tiptoe catch. In That's the right. I forgot about there. that. Uh, yeah. the, he, the defender's like, there's no way you're going to catch it. And then he <laughs> did. And then, uh, you know, it's kind of what happened in this one, which 
You know, it's not the ideal way to use a running back as a receiver is just hope the defender says, eh, no, you're not, you're not a threat. Um, but it, it's worked a couple times for touchdowns. So uh, beyond that, you know, I, I think really moving forward, maybe we'll see Tala Papa's role lessened. It wouldn't surprise me if they continue to trot him out there as the first guy. Um, but there's a chance that they say, hey, we think Davis and Newton moving forward are, are two of the main main backs. And then maybe you have Nixon as a third, but then Adams, they continue to give playing time to and increasingly so. And he gets talked up really, really highly by the coaching staff as the prototypical back that they want. So I don't know that it's an embarrassment of riches, but I think it's an embarrassment of slightly above average to, you know, above average. And I think there's there's enough differences between the backs that they keep finding new ways to use them in different situations, but none of them are so good that you just say, okay, that's our guy, and this guy, these two are clearly separated. We just got five or six backs who are all in kind of a general range, uh, and that's what's yeah, led to yeah. that many carries for all yeah. of them. I, I think you're exactly right. Like Adams got an opportunity and played well enough that you don't want to take those opportunities away from him. It's not like he's earned a 50% timeshare at the position. He's been so electric. He's done anything like that, but he's played well enough that you probably want to see more and it's worth the developmental investment to get him snaps here and there. And then, like you said, Davis is probably the most complete and has probably been the most consistent. Newton has done some very exciting things when he's been in the game. And then, you know, it, you can't probably ignore the fact that the teammates voted Telepapa a captain almost as soon as he got on the team. So like you probably don't want to just start taking playing time away from any of these guys. Um, and, or at least, you know, to the degree that they're not in the rotation anymore. Uh, but it does make me wonder if you're kind of missing out on an opportunity to ride the hot hand or get a guy into a groove or get him warmed up or something. And it's hard to quantify something like that, but the years we watched miles Gaskin at running back, it definitely felt like there were games where he started off slowly and kind of, worked his way into a groove as he wore down the defense and got to see the looks that he was getting and, and played better as the game went on. Hard to say if we're going to sacrifice something like that with this approach. So let's take a break. That's That probably is enough on the Cal game. I mentioned earlier, we're going to do a little bit of a mid-season awards. Uh, it is two-thirds of the way through, but we can still call it mid. Uh, close enough. If we get to the Pac-12 title game and then also uh, a bowl game after that, then this will be have been the midpoint yeah, of the year. Yeah. Well, we're, yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> but we need that combination for this to be the midpoint. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> let's take our break, and we'll be right back to talk about some of our nominations for the awards. Welcome back. We're going to talk a little bit about mid-season awards. The way I want to do this, we're going to go category by category. And Max, you throw one out, and I want to see if our, our guesses match or our nominations match. I'm guessing in most cases there will be a lot of overlap. I think you've already seen my picks. So uh, let's just jump into it. Uh, the offensive MVP, uh, I think I know who you're going to say, but also give me a non-Michael Penix uh, vote as well. Uh, well, yeah, you, you really can't go anyone other than Penix at this point, uh, given that he's leading the country in passing yards. And in addition to that, you have to give a lot of the credit for the play of the offensive line to the way that he's been able to organize them pre-snap and everything. So there's really no way you can go with anyone other than Penix. Um, I think outside of that, you, you do kind of have to go to Romo Dunze as well, uh, as his primary weapon, um, the offensive line, there have been a lot of players who have played really well at that spot, but 
Uh, I don't think that any of them have been so far above the others that you say they deserve to be the non-quarterback MVP of the offense. None of the running backs have taken such a big hold that you can do that. And so Adunze um, has been the, the biggest target. And so he, he gets the vote. Yeah, absolutely agree with both of those. It's been fun to see Odunze kind of actualizing the potential that everybody said he had when he came onto campus. I remember even in his freshman year, all the coaches were saying that he stepped foot on the practice field and he was just like a different sort of player than all the other guys uh, at the position group. And he's played like that this year. He doesn't really have an obvious weakness uh, in his game. I give Jalen McMillan credit too in any other year. Uh, being at this point in the year, having six touchdowns over 600 receiving yards, you'd be talking about it as like mm-hmm. one of the great receiving seasons in Husky history. And it's, it's almost an afterthought. So uh, it's a great, great passing team. Uh, you mentioned that you can't really give the the vote to anybody other than Penix, but two of the beneficiaries of that, uh, both, uh, both McMillan and Odunze deserve uh, some recognition as well. Yeah. Let's look at the, just yeah. real quick that um, McMillan, you know, it really does feel like that 2016 Dante Pettis season where he was overshadowed by John Ross, uh, but was, when you look at the stats on their own, he was also absolutely incredible. In that For season. sure. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's not impossible that we see Rome head to the NFL after this year and Jalen gets to be the featured guy and he then, you know, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if we saw a similar Rome as a high draft pick and then Jalen stays an extra year and then he becomes a high, but maybe not quite as high draft pick in a similar pattern. I mean, if that also comes with him returning like 17 punts for touchdowns, wow. um, I, I'll sign up for that. Uh, let's go on the other side of the ball. The defensive MVP may be a little less obvious, but I, I have a feeling we'd probably come up with the same nomination here too. Yeah, I think I think it really comes down to either Braylon Trice or Jeremiah Martin, and I think Trice ultimately wins it. I think PFF put out today that he leads all Power Five uh, edge players in total pressures. Um, which, granted, you have played one extra game, so if you're just going off of counting stats, then you know maybe on a per game basis it's not quite as high. Um, but ultimately, those two guys, I think there there's an argument that could be made for Julie Lutulagosanoa. I I haven't you know he hasn't been quite the Vita Vea, uh, you know, Danny Shelton, Greg Gaines force in the middle. But at the same time, you you look at the game where he was banged up slash didn't play, and that was against Arizona State when we let a backup quarterback score 40 plus points on us and our pass rushers did absolutely nothing. So I, I won't say that I've, you know, really felt watching the game like, man, Tuli is taking up all these double teams and that's what's freeing up our edge rushers. But at the same time, if you're if you're taking value by partially looking at what happens when you're missing, the, the one game where he was really missing is the one game where it really looked like that was the piece that was that was potentially missing. I, I wouldn't ultimately go with that argument, but I, I could theoretically buy it if someone wanted to make it. Yeah, that's that's an interesting way to look at it. I agree with you that and he probably hasn't played just by virtue of the position he's playing, the number of snaps that some of the right. other defenders yeah. have played, even setting aside the game that he missed. Uh, but it, it it is kind of like a looking back even a little further, like Elijah Qualls or you mentioned Shelton, the kind of guys, you know, Vita Vea, you noticed him as a defensive yes. tackle a lot. You noticed him ten times a game. You notice him in the NFL. That's odd. That's you you know, abnormal. Yeah. Uh but this is probably the best interior defensive line season we've had since 
um, since Greg Gaines graduated. I mean, with all due respect to Levi Onzerike, he had a, a really solid final season, but um, probably a, a little bit more well-rounded. Yeah, right. It's not, not... With his body type, that wasn't how he should have ideally been used. And that's unfortunately, we just didn't have another guy to fill that role. And so he, he did a really good job filling in, but that ideally you, you wouldn't have used him that way most of the time. Yeah. And I, I think you mentioned Martin as a runner up to Trice and I've been surprised how well he's played. I kind of thought that he might end up kind of seeding a little bit more playing time. Uh, if we we're going to see both a healthy ZTF and uh brilliant Trice playing opposite each other, it'd be hard to keep them off the field together, but Martin has earned it. He's played really well. And I, when I was going through this exercise in my own head, I was surprised how quickly I thought of him because game to game, he feels more like a very solid, steady contributor but he's actually kind of like getting home and making plays more often uh than than a steady contributor normally would uh how about uh on the you know maybe a little bit less heralded kind of a breakout player uh starting on the offensive side somebody who's outperformed what we would have expected from them this year and again let's say somebody other than michael Penix, because i think honestly you probably could say he's been the biggest breakout player despite being a pretty established player as well yeah, I think uh, I, I have seen your pick, and I, I think it's a, a decent one here of, of Roger Rosengarten. But I do think there's uh, arguments to be made for, one, Jack Westover. I don't think has quite gotten the credit. Um, you know, it, it does seem like a couple times a game he has been able to not just, you know, catch the ball, but catch it, get upfield, get a first down, get extra yards after the catch that I really was not expecting for him from him quite as much as a receiver. And especially in contrast to Devin Colt, just his reliability as a receiver and not dropping balls on those crossing routes and things where you got to, you know, get your head around to make sure that you're not going to get popped, but you got to make sure to hold the ball before you do that. Um, I've been, I've been impressed with how he's done this year and uh, also serving as, as the blocking tight end when needed. Um, and then kind of the other name I would throw out there would be Jalen Polk, um, who has uh, had, been more off and on than other other players obviously the michigan state game was was by far the the best that he's looked but when you look at those stats again like you said about mcmillan when you look at polk's overall numbers uh for a third receiver those are those are pretty crazy for somebody who hasn't gotten the chance to show it but uh coming back to it i think i think if you're if you're taking this as somebody who really hasn't had the chance to perform all that much before this um i've, I've been most impressed with rosengarden at right tackle yeah, and part of the reason that I, I chose him was because entering the season, well, first of all, in the spring, it wasn't at all clear that he was going to be anywhere in the starting lineup. Yeah. He kind of emerged from the spring into fall practices. And at that point, it's kind of a question of like, well, I guess this guy had a good camp, but it's it, he's young. He's going to be the least experienced member of this offensive line. And he hasn't just held his own. He's been for big stretches, kind of the guy that you can rely on. And they're running behind him, like deliberately calling plays outside to the right to try to get behind him and Benavalu. So that's been really exciting. I, I, I'm really happy uh, to see that. It means that we probably got a couple more years of really solid line play on that side as well, not, not having to worry about it. Maybe even flip him over to the left side at some point if necessary. Um, how about on the defensive side? If Is there a breakout player on that side that you would um, point to? I mean, this might be a little bit more painful to come up yeah. with because some of the candidates just have fizzled. Right. I, I think there's a limited number of players you could go with. If I was going with some of the honorable honorable mentions, 
There was a point where I would have said Julius Irvin if you were asking after yeah. like three or four weeks, but obviously he, he had one game where he didn't play quite as well and then he got hurt and he hasn't been out there. So that kind of took that away as an option. Um, can't really can't really go with anybody else in the secondary uh, because of the way that that position is played. Tuatele um, has gotten more play on the line, but he just hasn't been much of a factor. So can't can't go with him. And then so it really comes down to otherwise the the linebacker spot. And so I think Alfonso Tupatala ends up being the the winner for me at that spot. You could argue also Jeremiah Martin hasn't really had yeah. like if this is his breakout season, if you want to call it that, he has more experience and he's started in the past um for, for multiple schools at times. So he doesn't quite fit the mold of young guy, but in the terms of he's had by far his best season, I, I think you could go there as well. But uh Tupatala's been the one younger player who's getting one of his first shots who has kind of played at an above average level and hopefully he's okay after he got yeah. at the end of the cow game i was just gonna say i mean we'll we'll probably get a pretty good look in a couple of weeks although the health situation at linebacker is very much in flux would expect yeah. to see ufo show back sometime in the relatively near future even if yeah. at you know reduced capacity and hopefully dupatala can come back to it he's been i think he's done a little bit of everything and he hasn't really shown up as as like having big misses in any one area but his ability to rush the passer uh, when he's called on the blitz has been probably his defining skill to me that he's really able to get pressure uh coming from the linebacker position uh in a way that you know by direct comparison cam bright hasn't and bright has been obviously fairly disappointing as a, a transfer who had a lot of power five starting experience but uh tuputal has been used more as the downhill uh, linebacker and has done really well at it. Um, so speaking of things that haven't quite lived up to expectations, uh, let's talk about the offensive side. It's been, you know, a record breaking offense, one of the most effective offenses in the country. Is there one player you can point to who hasn't really lived up to your expectations? Yeah, I would say the, well, I would say there's two, the the kind of number two runner up for me is I, I mentioned previously Devin Culp a little bit, just that I was yeah. really feeling like he had the chance to really explode in this offense and be that threat. And we saw the moments like when he hurdled the guy and then ran for a first down this last week where it's just like, man, if you could just harness that and be like that all the time, um, it would be awesome. But he just, the, the hands just aren't there. Um, so Unfortunately, I, you know, he, he's up there, but I think then otherwise, um, Jackson Kirkland obviously was somebody who everyone expected to be uh, an all-conference player, and I don't think he's been bad necessarily, but he's been pretty anonymous so far uh, at, at left guard, and I mean, just by virtue of he, he couldn't win his job back seemingly from from the left tackle spot with Fagatanu, um, that you just got to put him up there. Yeah, that was my choice. And I, the reason I, I picked him probably has more to do with higher expectations going in. You're right. He hasn't been the, the worst offensive lineman. He hasn't been the worst offensive player. Uh, but I, I remember when we found out he was coming back for another year, it was like, you know, the kind of a manna from heaven moment, especially knowing the amount of turnover we were likely to have on the offensive line. And then the fact that he's probably getting outplayed by two or three of the other offensive linemen who we're in that group of guys where we were worried about having to backfill that vacancy uh, is surprising. And, and in a good way, in the case of somebody like Rosengarten, but you know, I, it kind of makes you feel bad because after the amount of injuries Kirkland has had and the disruptions to his 
career and and the problems he had with getting his eligibility back and and having to miss some practices. It's hard to hang too much of that on him, but it has been a little bit disappointing. I also wanted to mention uh, Aaron Dumas here because the, the New Mexico running back transfer, we just talked about how we have all these running backs we can't keep off the field. There was a, a stretch of time, probably a majority of the offseason, when it seemed like he was going to be the number one running back because the uh, Wayne Talapapa transfer didn't come until later in the cycle. Yep. And up to that point, it seemed like they targeted Dumas intentionally to bring him in to be the lead running back. And we have not seen him. He's been totally MIA. And maybe that's just because there are so many other guys. But it has been kind of strange that that's just a name that uh, kind of vanished into thin air. Yeah, you don't. I mean, you'd have had such a weird situation in the spring where you looked at who the returning backs were um, that Cam Davis was hurt, couldn't participate. Richard Newton was hurt, couldn't participate. Sam Adams was hurt, couldn't participate. Mm-hmm. Um, we obviously in Mecca Megwa ended up transferring. Uh, maybe on Sunday was was able to participate, but doesn't seem to fit the prototype of what the coaching staff wants. Um, and so, you know, Dumas was the guy kind of by virtue of being the only guy in the room in the spring who was actually healthy. Uh, Don't forget I, about Camden Sermon. Very important running back. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Cannot forget about Camden Sermon. Um, KB will be very upset that I did not immediately bring up Camden Sermon there. We got but, him in here. You know, looking throughout the looking throughout the the offseason, um, or you know, through spring practices, like it's not as if Dumas looked awesome at the running back spot. He was just kind of the one who was there. And then, you know, it was a pretty clear indication, I think, the fact that we brought in both Palapapa and Nixon, like right after spring, where it's like, all right, we got to see what what happened with Dumas uh being the guy, and then we immediately bring in two more running backs and that probably should have been a signal of, hey, they're not convinced this is going to work. And, you know, I will see whether this is a, a situation where, you know, when you look at Dumas, he he had one, I mean, he, he had good stats in New Mexico, but he had one truly great game. Mm-hmm. It was against Fresno State. Um, and you think this potentially might be a, a lesson learned for the coaching staff in terms of they, they saw a guy who was like, he was really good against us in that one game. And prob, you know may have evaluated him based off of he caused us problems that one time. But uh, sometimes you need to you need to look at the the whole and you know potentially evaluate on that basis. So I'm gonna guess there's probably not gonna be another case where the coaching staff's going to take a transfer solely because they had one good game against UW during the. Well, start. let's see if uh, Penix goes pro and we bring in the Arizona State backup quarterback to yeah, lead the a, QB room next year. That'd yeah. be yeah. Um, Let's talk about we we definitely covered some of the disappointments in the secondary and the, on the defensive side generally. But if you had to pick out one, um, you know, nominee for that defensive disappointment award at this point in the season, where do you think that would land? Yeah, and you would naturally look to the secondary, but I think I'm actually going to go with Cam Bright. Yeah, I, that's I fair. really thought that he was going to step in and be the guy at the linebacker spot and be that that guy that we haven't had since. Uh, you know, I don't want to compare him to BBK because I did not expect him to put up anywhere near those kind of stats, but uh, to be probably the best linebacker that we'd had since that point, and he just hasn't been good. It's yeah. you know. Um, and it, maybe it's just that the the systems didn't quite fit and everything, or he's had something nagging going on, but there just have not really been moments where I've gone, oh, wow, that was a great play. Who did that? Oh, it was Cam Bright. It's more been like, hey, that guy got open over the middle. Well, who was supposed to be there? Oh, it looks like that was in Cam Bright's zone or, mm-hmm. you know, that holding penalty that they didn't call at the goal line where it was just kind of like, oh, yep, all right, that was Cam trying to cover 
Uh, and as a pass rusher, he had some really strong moments at, at Pitt, but he hasn't really gotten through on the blitzes for the most part at UW. Um, I just, you know, has he's been he's been a guy, uh, and I was I was really expecting something more than that. Yeah, my enduring image of him is probably going to be, and you mentioned it, the just sitting a little too shallow in the in the zone, and there's somebody just very extremely wide open. It doesn't even require the quarterback to make a touch throw over his head because he just cheated up too far close to the line. That I feel like, I mean, it's probably happened like three times this year, but in my mind, it's happened like 30 times this year. Uh, and then there's also the times where it's just like there's somebody out in the flat, and he's like, oh, oh, got to get out there. Oh, no, too late. And it's just left with somebody streaking down the sideline. If if not bright, I think my first pick, and it kind of pains me to say this, would be Alex Cook. Uh, oh, the, yeah. the, it hasn't really worked in any part of the game for him as a safety. And he seems like an excellent, excellent guy. And uh, just things haven't clicked this year. And some of it's probably changing systems. And he probably was better suited to playing that center field type of safety role where he's roaming around helping uh, using his speed and anticipation to break things up. And he's being asked to play a lot more man defense, play closer to line, do more coverage. Uh, and those things are not playing to his strengths and it's shown up a lot, like just missed tackles um, or, you know, tackles that are, are <laughs> letting the runner get an extra three yards at the end and then just getting beat one-on-one -on -one in coverage and for somebody who's supposed to be one of the veteran leaders of the secondary, that's kind of a letdown. And I'm, I'm, I'm sad that that's the fact that's a fact, but it's, it's definitely what it has seemed like watching him this year. Yeah. And, and note that both of our picks have really unfortunate names for being disappointments. If you're getting burned in man coverage and your name is cook, like yeah. you're just inviting all of the cooked puns. Mm -hmm. And if you're, if your name is bright and you are the opposite of a bright spot, just yeah. not great. Camp Wright is a, a very fun football name. It's a fun it name to say. Name. It sticks like in it. your head. It's, I think that's part of the reason I was excited when he was transferring. I mean, also because Pitt was really good last year and he was previously all conference. Yeah. That, that Those were promising things, but just hasn't worked quite well. Uh, last thing, a little bit different direction. Last award. Uh, what has been your favorite individual moment of the year? It could be a single play or a point in a game or whatever. What, what has really... Um, jumped out at you so far this year yeah uh i feel like it has to go against michigan state just because that was by far the the best game the best feeling that we will have there um i, I the obvious is probably the the safety but i think that the jalen polk i think it was either his second or third touchdown where he just was streaking deep, beat absolutely everybody in the Michigan State secondary. I think that put us up like 20 or something, and it just felt like, oh my goodness, the route is on. This feels yeah. like Stanford uh, from 2016, where we were supposed to be in this really close match, and all of a sudden, it's just not even remotely close. Um, and I think, you know, you'd have finished six and two at up to this point before the bye week, and that's a really good record. And I think a lot of Husky fans feel disappointed by that almost, even though, you know, realistically we were, you know, won four games last year. We should be ecstatic yeah. that we had six wins at the bye. Um, but really, if you could just bottle the feeling of kicking the ass against Michigan State before we realized yep. that Michigan State also kind of sucks, uh, that would be that that feeling that I would like to bottle and just keep forever.
Yeah, I, I went with the safety from the same game, and I think you summarized a lot of the reasons for why it feels like it has to be that game. I mean, we were unranked. We were not just unranked, but we were hadn't beaten – we'd beaten Kent State and Portland State coming off of a season that was an absolute disaster. So we didn't have any idea if we were, like, even kind of good. We'd seen some offensive fireworks against teams that weren't supposed to be able to defend us. Uh, and so – just coming out the way we did at that safety, I think put us up nine um, nothing early, and it was like, ooh, we might be onto something here. It just seemed like you know a gift, and it felt so good. And then, like you said, a couple of plays later, as the half wore on, it, it kind of got it got to twenty two zero, got to twenty nine to eight, and it was like, oh, like we're just like beating up on this team. And yeah, I mean, now we look back on it in hindsight and it's like, oh, Michigan State was pretty pedestrian, but they were number 11 in the country. They were 2-0. Yeah. They're coming off an awesome year. And like you can say that they were always destined to go through this slump where they lost four in a row, but that's not necessarily true. Like if we had laid down in that game, like maybe things break differently for them. And they had a couple of close games and uh, you know, maybe they beat Maryland or something and they're currently sitting at like five and five and three or whatever. And like, that is a really meaningful win. So what, I mean, probably not, but it, like, I, I don't think we could just say like that game, that that atmosphere wasn't real because Michigan state had a couple bad losses later on. I think it was pretty awesome. Uh, let's, Finish up the awards, move into the recommendations and plugs section. Gaby did send one in, um, somehow got the information out of the uh, internet censors uh, in Russia to say that she loved the finale of Dairy Girls on Netflix and was crying watching the end of it. Um, we may have talked about this before at some point, but my review of that show was I watched two episodes and I could not track the jokes because of the accents. Uh, and I'm sure it was great. And I, I am just that have a, a like a barrier in my ears that doesn't allow me to appreciate it. So um, take that for what it's worth. Yeah, I have not, I have not seen that show, um, but I can, I can definitely understand uh, not, not being able to comprehend some of the, some of the accents uh, pretty much the only, I feel like British content I've consumed. Well, that's not totally true, but for the most part, it's great British baking show. And this, this, oh, last, yeah. this current, current season hasn't really had, too many people that have terrible accents, but there was the one in the previous season that had, I don't remember the, the woman's name, who just in particularly had a just impenetrably thick uh, accent that was just like, I never understand anything you say. There's a, the, the one of the Scottish guys this year gives me That's, problems the, as the well. Scottish guys also had pretty similar ones uh, this year, but I feel like I, I, do okay with the Scottish for the most part. There's just some, I don't know, I, maybe it's the Welsh that I have trouble with. But. <laughs> well, I think this extends our talking about Great British Breaking Show and Noel Fielding as like the sports podcast that has mentioned Noel Fielding more than all others combined record. <laughs> so it's good that we were able to extend that. Anything else you want to uh, plug or highlight or put whatever recommend for this week? Uh football season always feels like it turns down the amount of other things that I'm able to consume content wise. Uh, and especially um, my wife and I are both, both big fantasy uh, content people. And so it's just been alternating between house of the dragon and, and rings of power. Whenever we've had spare moments to watch TV. Uh, I, I generally think I prefer a 
episode of Brings the Power better because it's a little bit more lighthearted and that's generally what I want. But I think, and, and I, I love, I'm somebody who loves movie soundtracks and the the music for Rings of Power. It's not as good as the original Lord of the Rings movies, but it's it's good. I I really enjoyed listening to that when I'm working and stuff. Um, and then House of the Dragon is just kind of the production quality is good. I there's just not that character. It's just not nearly as funny, and that's that's hmm. kind of what it comes down to. That like even even Game of Thrones at its best, you know, it's violent and everything, but it it's funny still. And if you don't have that, just kind of like okay, it's family political drama. And they're dragons, but there's no laughter. So I just haven't haven't gotten into it. Yeah. Some of the best drama shows have these moments that are extremely funny. Game of Thrones definitely had that. But like, I think there were a handful of moments in Mad Men, which was like a deeply unfunny show. But there were a few moments that just made me like fall off the couch laughing. Uh, it's just like being able to throw that in really takes the show to another level. Uh, I'm going to recommend a book I just finished called What We Owe the Future by an author named William McCaskill, or he's, I guess, technically a uh, philosophy professor at Oxford. It's a book about, it's a very interesting book. It's 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 nonfiction. It, he's writing about like large uh, worldwide problems that humanity will face over future generations and discussing how to use uh different value structures to make decisions about how to address those problems in the present. Uh, things like population ethics and population philosophy and and uh, how to value uh, future human life relative to present human life. And it's a really interesting way to think about philanthropy and charity and things like that, but also kind of made me start thinking about other things like engineered uh, pandemics and bioweapons in a, a way that I had never cared to think about before but uh maybe not the most like exciting thing but he he has not become like fatalistic and he's a pretty optimistic person in the end uh and super smart and it i came away from it feeling like you know i, I was approaching uh some of the issues that we deal with at a, like a, a human level uh, a little bit differently than i would have before uh so that's that's an abnormal thing to come away from a book with so you know, it's a, it's a little bit of a weighty read, but if you want something nonfiction, I, I would definitely suggest checking that out. Well, if you if you write a book about the world's future problems and you come away with it not being fatalistic, props to you, buddy. Cause yeah, right. I, I don't know how that's possible these days, but I have good yeah. Yeah, it's a book where he, he extensively talks about like the current state of climate change and what's likely to happen over the next 50, 100, 1,000 10,000 years. And and it comes away from it saying like, I think that's probably the third biggest threat to human existence right now, yet somehow still doesn't come off like he's ready for us to all just like burn up in flames or something, which is incredible. There you go. Yeah. All right. I think that's it. Any final thoughts from you, Max? Uh, no, I'm just looking forward to uh, my 15,000 words of men's basketball preview articles <laughs> coming out over the next week that have been written over the last three months so that I don't have to do it all in the middle of football season. So uh, for those of you out there who, who are ready for, for, you know, some additional basketball season, we got that right around the corner. I am not a neutral observer on this, but I, I am, I, those are must read. I will pour over them. I have the guard preview uh, bookmarked right now. I'm looking forward to reading that when I have enough time. So uh, 
it's excellent work. I recommend everybody reading that doesn't qualify as a non-sports recommendation, but that should probably come. If you're trying to weigh whether reading that or uh, what we owe the future by William McCaskill, I'd start with the position previews and then move on to the philosophy book. Uh, Thanks again for hanging out with us, Max. Uh, I don't know who will be back next week, but either Gaby or coach B or somebody else will probably be back next week. And we'll be uh, talking about the upcoming Oregon state game and it'll be exciting. So Thanks for listening and go dogs. Oh, and Cody Pickett almost forgot. Cody Pickett's going to be here too. Go dogs. Go dogs. <laughs>